welcome to Beyond Beckdale, the podcast about film and feminism. I'm your host, Contrera. This is episode 32 of the podcast and the first episode from season two, which is focusing on specialist subjects and Trojan horses. And if you don't know what that means, I recommend you go back to the previous episode and listen to that. It's only really quick and it explains what this season is all about. This episode is our first specialist subject with BAFTA member, sound designer and all-round amazing girl, Emma Bart, who will tell us how to have a career in sound. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here it is. It was very nice to see you um, on Twitter because I do believe that sound is something, in my opinion, that there aren't enough women working in. And to find someone who is doing that job was really exciting for me. So I could ask you all the questions, not just the technical ones, uh, although it's always good to have someone to help. Um, do Should we talk from like the beginning? I don't want this to be like a job interview, but um, like, how did you decide to get into it? Um, well, actually, I didn't decide to get into post-production at the start. Right. Um, when I was back in school, I used to be part of a school choir and also a church choir because, you know, I'm Irish and fully Catholic <laughs> country, so, you know, you were forced to go to church every Sunday. Um, <laughs> and we were recording a CD for charity with my school choir, and this guy came along with his mixing desk and his microphones and set it up and recorded us, and I just thought, that is the coolest feckin' thing I've ever seen. And I knew I wanted to do something music-related. Couldn't be a singer. I, it was okay, but I wasn't good enough to that I could ever make a career out of it. Okay. So it, I started researching uh, universities that did sound engineering and found the university that I ended up going to, which was Pulse Recording Studios, which was actually a fully functioning recording studio too. And applied, got in. And did two years there. And what they do is they don't just focus on music. They also do live sound, um, radio, and post-production. So while I was studying my course, I actually had more of an interest in live sound. And I did a year in a venue doing brick experience. But I hated it. Oh. Uh, yeah, I really, really hated it. It's, it's not only that it's very sexist, like bands mentality is women cannot do live sound because there's a lot of like lugging gear around and it's, you know, it's very manual labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the hours are really unsociable. Like you start at three in the afternoon and you go on until three in the morning. Because it was things like gigs, concerts, etc. So it's the, the main business is like seven till 11 or whatever it is yeah so you have to be there first to make sure your everything's ready and then also be the last person leaving I'm guessing yeah and your sound check if your gig starts at seven your sound check is from probably about four o'clock because you have to do the sound check for all the um warm-up acts and then the main act but then also if there's a DJ set on after the band is on you have to stay for the DJ set, yes. even though it's mainly just like a laptop and a cable. Um, tech support has to be there. So if the DJ set was gone on until three in the morning, you were there until 4 a.m. So you did that for a year as part of your training, and then you were very tired. 
I'm guessing. Yeah, so, if you like clubbing, perfect. I kind of wanted to see my friends and, you know, mm. be able to do normal things. Because, yeah, so, the, the majority of your job as well, a, a lot of jobs in creative industries are not at the most sociable times of the week, are they? So, and I'm guessing yours was particularly right at the point where all your friends wanted to go out, to go to gigs or what have you. You were like, no, that's exactly when I'm working. Exactly. Yeah, so you couldn't do anything. It was horrible. Mm. So after that year, you thought, oh, I've done this, it isn't for me, then what <laughs> happened? Um, well, I was actually nearing, I, I was three months away from finishing my uni course. And I was like, oh, feck, I really need to get a job <laughs> when I finish. So I started just researching all the post-production houses and actually music studios in Dublin. And started sending out CVs and applying for positions, runner positions. And thankfully, the one that I ended up working for for nine years, Green Scene, they were looking for runners. So I applied. And actually, at first, I didn't get the job. Um, they decided to give the position to another girl because they thought I was too soft and too nice to make oh. it as a runner. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Um, but the thing was, they had said to me during the interview, oh, you know, we'll get back to you. This was probably a Monday. They said they'll get back to me by the following Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And when they hadn't, I decided to follow it up and just say, you know, just wondering, wanted to check in and see if he'd made a decision. And at the time, they had already hired this girl. Mm-hmm. Well, she had hated it so much that <laughs> she went out on her very first day. She went out on her lunch break and never came back. Came back. How can you possibly even tell? Like, I understand with running, there's lots of different things involved. Might have just been a bad morning. But I suppose that was a a fortuitous for you. Yeah, it was amazing because the day that I emailed was the day she had done this. So they were really desperate to get someone in quickly. So they were like, can you start tomorrow? And thankfully, my university, um, it wasn't like a proper big university. It was quite chilled out. You got to speak with the owners all the time. And I went and had a conversation with them. And they were like, look, you know, finish the course part time. That's absolutely no problem with us. We'll let you do your exams and work around your new job. They were like, this is what you've been trying to do. This Mm. is what you're aiming for. So completely go for it. So I did. Um, And I worked full time in screen scene and then finished my uni course off part time for those three months. And it was brilliant. I really, really loved that company. And then what did you find your average jobs were? How long were you a runner for in the end? Well, I actually had to do it twice. So the first time I was a runner for, I think, about five months. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I moved up to reception and started looking after the audio department's bookings so I could get to know the clients and then moved in to be an audio assistant. Um, and just as I, I was an audio assistant for quite a while and it was going really well. I was starting to get my own projects and then the recession hit. Uh-huh. And what this company, company I worked for decided to do, which actually was really amazing of them. They didn't want to let go all of their staff or a lot of their staff. So what they did was they did make some redundancies, but then some of us who had, you know, moved up to a different level in our career, they asked us to take a step back to a job that we might have started out in in the company. Ah. And we were told, you know, look, this isn't going to be forever. This is for a few months. Let us get through the worst of it. 
it means you still keep your job and then as soon as things get better you go back up to the position you were in and that's what I had to do I had to go back to being a runner other people in the company had to go back to being you know tech ops and librarians um, and it was tough it was a really horrible experience to go through but also I was really grateful because the company kept me they didn't yeah no it's an interesting solution actually I've not heard of that before and it sounds clever like everybody sounds like they were kind of in the same boat so you don't feel singled out in the sense that you feel like maybe your career is going backwards instead of forwards but that you still got to learn things and remain in the business I think that sounds really clever on behalf of the company owners because I'm guessing then you saw through the recession and there wasn't an interrupted career for you it was just like maybe you weren't progressing or getting yeah more of your own audio projects I think um it's really nice to hear stories of kind of loyalty to people particularly in creative fields because it's often easiest to get rid of you if you don't have the projects to work on um okay that's good Uh, so I want to keep going with your career but um when I interviewed uh, Helen Hamer, an actress, for uh, the season one of the podcast, she was. I asked her if, and she went to drama school. I asked her if she um, saw any sexism or, or understood like any differences back from her drama school days through her career. And obviously, you said something earlier that I wanted to kind of pick up on. So, um, I used to work in journalism for a bit, and I had a friend, a girl, who was um, our um, like. DP basically and um she uh, she was taller than me and bigger than me but she wasn't massive and she had to carry our heavy camera equipment around with us so I so um, we were a small company and there was no there's no one else doing it but it was hard and people would sometimes help us because we'd interview people all over the country um so because camera equipment is extremely heavy I find and so did you notice anything else apart from that you might not be strong enough to do this kind of heavy lifting thing were you the only person uh, when you were studying or how many girls to guy ratio was there Oh, it was atrocious. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was speaking to someone about this the other day, actually, and they were really shocked. So the way it worked was our first year in uni, um, there was four groups and each group had 30 students in it. So we were all first years together. Yeah. Um, it's pretty that, big, 120. Yeah. 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 So of that 120, um, there was five girls. <laughs> yeah. So then what happened was for the second year, because the second year was a bit more intense, they limited the class sizes. So the class size went down to, I think it was actually only 30 students. And Did, did people per- leave? What happened? Did people go and do specialise elsewhere? How does that work? Yeah, it's mm. kind of one of those things. They either didn't get the didn't get enough quali- uh, grades, well, yeah. not even grades, but points, I suppose, to progress into the second year. A lot of people just didn't want to do it. Um, they decided that sound engineering wasn't for them. Um, a lot of people were actually from the country and decided they didn't want to live in Dublin any lo- longer, so yeah. they moved back home. There was like a whole variety of reasons, but um, some people actually got jobs after the first year, so they didn't need to do it the second year. Yeah. Um, so we yeah, were down to 30, year, which is a huge call, really, isn't it? Three quarters. Yeah. Uh, completely. Yeah. And I think there is only three of us in the second year. <laughs> That's probably actually better odds, but yeah. <laughs> but um, but actually fewer girls overall. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, 
Oh. And did you did you feel did anyone did anyone say anything? Did it feel like a I don't know a blokey a masculine career back even then? Oh, yeah, big time. Mm-hmm. I remember they actually had to separate me into a different. So we were <laughs> divided into small groups of five uh, for our live sound engineering kind of module. Yeah, and I was the only girl in a group of four lads. And they had to separate me out of this group and put me into a different one because one of the lads was being so sexist towards me. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they, they, like, in fairness to the university, they identified it. They knew I was unhappy. They knew this wasn't okay. So they moved me out of it. And actually, come to think of it, one of our lecturers as well was really sexist towards myself and the two other girls in our class in that second year. And he used to pick on us so much and single us out in class and, you know, made us feel really stupid and like we couldn't do it. As if you had to prove yourself more than the guys had to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I I just like, it's really funny because it's 2019 now. There are still a lot of problems we have. And obviously this was previously when you were studying. So it was a while ago. But um, Mm. every time I do this, I'm still shocked and I don't know why I'm not. But surely that's the stage when you need to be more, you know, positively encouraging women, not discriminating against them. It's um, very strange. That must have been horrible for you. It was. And I think the worst part actually about the whole experience was when I was doing the work experience in the venue, the sound engineer who was there and who was training me, like on one hand, I didn't feel he was sexist. But then on the other hand, he turned around to me and said, if I wanted to have a successful career in audio, I needed to cut my hair and start dressing and acting like a man. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And he that actually hasn't been said to me just by a man like that was you know at the very beginnings of my career but that yeah. was actually said to me by a female director two years ago oh that so similar similar thing yeah that like what cutting yeah. your hair and dressing and acting more like a man wow that's regressive beyond belief it's mental but I think in fairness to this director she was coming from a place of well that's how she's been treated in mm-hmm. her career She's been made to feel like if she wants to become a really successful director, that's what she has to do. Mm. And it was her insecurity that she was projecting onto me. Whereas I'm of the mentality that I go into the studio. I actually hate, I don't own any trousers. I only wear dresses (laughs) and skirts. And I go into the studio in a dress or a skirt and high heels every day with hair and makeup done. And I view it as a way of me sticking up my fingers to anybody who thinks that I can't have a successful career if I dress the way I do or if I act the way I do, oh, which absolutely. is quite feminine. There is, there is something about you I can tell already in all of these experiences that, it, if anything, this puts fire in your belly and serves to increase your tenacity. The, the, you know, even from the emailing people about the job that we were discussing, plus people saying something to you, or men and women saying something to you, which you were like, no, that's not right. That's not me. And I always think it's a it's a really fine line to tread because I want to praise you and say, well done, good on you for standing up for your rights. But sometimes I feel like because of the complicated nature of feminism, that some people might be like, well, because that happened, you were able to behave in that way and it toughened you up and you were able to do that in your career. And I think that we have to really be careful and say that shouldn't be something 
that you have to go through just because you dealt with it effectively that doesn't make it okay I totally know what you mean because Mm -hmm. I have to say the same thing uh, to young girls that I mentor and I have to I have to warn them about situations that they might face and I have to give them advice sometimes. So one of the pieces of advice that was given to me early on in my career was that there may be days where I face clients who might scream and shout at me. (laughs) And the person who gave me this advice was my old MD. And he said, I'm not saying that this is okay, but sometimes you just have to grin and bear it and take it on the chin and not let it get to you mm-hmm. and it's like those people are just having a bad day and you just gotta you know accept it and you know carry on and I have to tell young girls that and I feel wrong saying that to them because obviously it's a very intimidating situation if you're in a room you're trying to do your job and you have maybe a male director or producer beside you and they start screaming and shouting mm-hmm. because they're frustrated of something not going wrong like maybe it's a technical issue and Every grain in my body says, this is not okay to tell people that you just have to grin and bear it. But also, it is the nature of the industry where you just sometimes have to. It's human nature. We all get a little bit frustrated and upset and angry, and some people deal with it better than others. I also think that um, film and TV is is a landscape that lends itself to judgment so much more than a lot of other jobs you know what you do what you're only as good as your last project etc and so yeah. therefore there is a lot more on the line at every point I suppose there yes that, that that's almost like two different questions which is one can you make it in this career because people are going to be intolerant can you be the person who just puts up with that and and can deal with other people's stress without it becoming your own versus am I being um singled out because of my gender and it seems to me that your experience is that that's sound engineering and and like you said you work with creative people who see something in a certain way and if you're responsible for a part of it and it isn't working tempers are going to be raised but that that seems very gender neutral that's that the industry more than you yourself or all those girls themselves yeah I think so I mean don't get me wrong there are occasions where you do get men just screaming and shouting at you because they're sexist fecking pigs (laughs) and I've had that as well and that's the case where you can usually tell you can usually tell straight away when you're in a studio and you have a male director or a male producer walk into the room you can tell instantly if they don't like you or if they have an issue with you being there, because it still happens to me to mm. this day. And they just don't, they don't look you in the eye. They don't really acknowledge you. If you say something out loud to the room, they ignore it and speak to someone else or answer someone else. And those are the sessions where if they start getting aggressive with me, I will go to management or I will go to whoever's hired me and say, I will not work with them again because yeah. they're sexist. But then on the other hand, like you said, this is a really creative industry and it's such a hotbed of pressure that if I do get a director who comes in and it is a bloke and they do get, you know, angry or frustrated during the session, as long as they've been, you know, a decent human being to me up until that point, I know that it's just the pressure of the job. So you do have to kind of gauge it. Yeah, and also, as we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, sometimes you've got to do things quickly and it's all 
encompassing and people aren't you know resting and eating and sleeping in the way that they should be because there are deadlines it seems to me every time I talk to someone whose full-time job is in film and tv it's either periods of no work or periods of completely intense work and I think that that's something that you can't necessarily teach people when they're going into it perhaps um the the runner girl who made one morning maybe she realized straight away what what the job might involve even you know yeah. just you know run, being a runner's kind of at the bottom end but you've got to start somewhere um and uh, and knew it wasn't for her so um it sounds to me that there are characteristics that anyone who's working in sound needs to have are you all right it's strange in his own horrible way i believe he loved me You did the right thing. You did it. I'm just the executioner. You pass the sentence. You're the Lady of Winterfell. Does that bother you? I was never going to be as good a lady as you. So I had to be something else. I never could have survived what you survived. You would have. You're the strongest person I know. I believe that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Well, don't get used to it. Still very strange and annoying. I mean, over here, there's tons of opportunities. So much drama is done, created in the UK. It's unbelievable. Like, especially this year, there is so much content being made that I know a lot of people are having trouble crewing up because they like all the good people have already been hired for jobs and we just don't have we have a shortage of like skilled creative talent right now mm. to go onto productions why do you think there's such a um like influx now of new work it's definitely down to we've got like new uh, content creators so you've now got Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, all creating content. Whereas before it was just the terrestri terrestrial, I can never say that word. <laughs> it was the TV stations like BBC. Terrestrial, so, yeah. Thank you. That's the <laughs> I can't do your job. I can do words. <laughs> Listen, as long as you can correct my grammar and, uh, no. you know, my pronunciation, that's perfect. <laughs> Can't you? Um, can you get me to like dub over you? That's what. That's what you could do, and then you'd be saying, "Oh my god, that's yeah. amazing!" <laughs> I want somebody. I can't do your Irish accent. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no, I don't want the Irish accent. But that's perfect. <laughs> no one can understand me. Do you know? It's really frustrating when uh, the letter or how you say, how we say it in Ireland. Yes, it's really difficult when I come over here and my job is an eighty or yeah. recorded. And I have to say it every day. <laughs> I was going to ask you, and I thought, is that an offensive question to, to ask whether anyone else? Because I, I can understand you perfectly, but I do know you, I'm sure in your um, job, you work with people all over the world. And so therefore, you know, people don't necessarily understand people, but I, I think you have a beautiful and I also want to say congratulations on um, awards as well. I didn't want to like gloss over that. That's phenomenal. Um, so uh, that's really good to hear. So you come over here. You're in London. Yeah. Um, ended up working in three different post-production facilities. So 
The first one, I started off as a senior sound engineer and new business assistant, which was great because it wasn't taking a step back. It was kind of staying in the same position. But it was just a really bad fit. Um, The the company kind of wanted to get into long form, but then didn't want to change their their workflows, which wasn't going to work if they wanted to do long form. So I just decided it wasn't a good place for me to be and decided to leave. And then ended up joining a different post-production facility. Mm-hmm. And again, they were lovely. I felt really at home there. But I actually experienced some bullying and some not very nice behavior from management in that company mm-hmm. and decided that for my own mental health sake, I needed to get out. So I did. And then went to another facility and was there for six months and again experienced the same thing, just more bullying. And I was like, you know what? I'm not okay with this. I worked in a facility for nine years in Dublin and never faced Mm. any of the treatment that I'm facing over here. So the reason I didn't come over and do freelance straight away is because unfortunately, when I moved over from Ireland, my credit list was basically decimated no one wanted to pay attention to it because it wasn't credits that they under that they knew yes besides like my ADR credits which were high profile jobs my mixing credits and my sound edi- editing credits weren't high profile enough so no one would pay attention to me so the only option I had was to go into a facility start building up my UK credits and then that was the only reason I could go freelance when I did was because I then had jobs on my CV that people recognized. And I also, I'm an absolute freak in this sense, but I love networking. I love meeting new people. And I love hearing about, you know, different people's backgrounds and their jobs and what they do. So I had made sure in that first three years that I was here that I really bloody networked my backside (laughs) off. And it, it stood to me because when I did decide right, I'm out of post-production facilities and I'm going it alone. I had a good list of contacts and I had some really close friends who looked after me and put me forward for jobs. And actually, I'm going to give them a shout out, Adele Fletcher and Joe Jackson saved my ass big time when I went free, uh, freelance. Um, and there are two other female sound engineers and Joe had just gone freelance herself a few months previous and knew how tough it was. And Adele had been freelance, I think, her whole career. And they really looked after me. They were like, okay, well, I've been offered this job and I can't do it, so I'm going to put you forward. And because they did that, I had my first two jobs lined up. And then I started getting jobs myself. And it's gone really well. And I think I've had an opportunity recently to go back into a facility and I've said no because I'm enjoying freelance too much and I don't want to ever have to go through the mental anguish I did in a facility mm. experience before. So now I'm at a weird point where I've made a really good reputation for myself as an ADR mixer or, or recordist and I love it. And I love doing ADR, but in the back of my head, I still want to do re-recording mixing for drama and feature film. And so trying to make that leap is proving really difficult being freelance because I didn't stay in Ireland long enough to get the credits so no one over here wants to take you seriously even though I mix documentaries and entertainment shows and everything else 
um, because I don't have a drama credit on there, mm-hmm. it lets you mix the drama. And it's like the same thing that female directors go through. It's a chicken and an egg situation. Like they spend, you know, the first years of their career, you know, either doing shorts or factual or entertainment shows. But to get a drama, they need drama experience, but no one wants to give them the experience to get that credit on their CV. Mm. I'm really so confused by that because to me, and then maybe this should be my next question, which is you about better explaining what you actually do day to day. I can't see the difference between the work you do if it's related to sound and yeah. The, the the slightly different mediums I would have thought with documentary versus drama you still have people talking to each other in a variety of different settings where you need to make sure that everything's clear I, I can't I'm not sure I can see the difference so maybe if you could first talk about those different parts of the job and what they involve because genuinely I don't think I know enough about it and I think listeners would like <laughs> to know as well um is, is that okay yeah of course so Generally, it varies depending on if it's drama and feature or if it's entertainment and factual, but you will always have, um, well, it depends on factual. The budgets are getting so small, the crews are being cut down. But you'd have a location recordist um, and possibly a boom up. Mm-hmm. Then when you get into post-production, you have your um, dialogue editor who just looks after dialogue. So tidying it up, if there is a take that, for technical reasons isn't working um, like the mic failed or the performance isn't great or whatever reason they will usually go through the alternative takes um, done that day so yeah. not the take that the picture editor has selected but the other takes yeah. and put them in um, if the dialogue editor deems that he can't he or she can't <laughs> find an alternative take I need to break out that habit too it's really bad um, if they can't find an alternative to take that works, they'll then start queuing up ADR. So then once they're done, it goes to an ADR mixer or recordist, which is what I do. Yeah. And that means where the dialogue, dialogue editor, the ADR mixer, director, producer, and actor will come into a room and the actor will try and redo their lines in time to the picture but they need to get the sync, projection, pitch, tone, performance all correct and all matching to what they did on the day. And it's really bloody tough. Mm. Um, so we'll go through that process. Once that's been completed, it then goes back to the dialogue editor. They'll tidy up the takes a bit more. Um, you also have a sound effects editor, which is another job that I do as well. And a sound effects editor is. I always use animation as a good way to describe what a sound effects editor does because animation starts off with no sound. The way an animation starts off is just with a script. Yeah. And you record the dialogue lines and the animators animated the dialogue. But then all of the sounds that you hear in an animation have to be created. They have to be put in there because there's no sync sound. So a sound effects editor will go in and put in atmospheres, create the the soundscape of whatever the scene might be. So if it's an outdoor scene with wind and rain and trees blowing, they'll put all those sounds in. They'll put in the footsteps. They'll put in the movement of the character, the cloth movement. Um, And, you know, anything else incidental, like if a car drives by, they'll put that in. 
And that's what a sound effect editor does, whether it's animation, factual, or drama and feature. Um, so then once the dialogue editor and sound effects editor have completed their jobs, it will then go to what's called a dubbing mixer or a re-recording mixer. And that person will take all of those elements, so the dialogue and the sound effects and the ADR, and Foley, actually, Foley if it's been recorded. So Foley is a process where the picture will be sent to a Foley artist and a Foley recordist. They'll go into a room, and if there's the budget, they will recreate all of the footsteps for every character that's in a scene or in the movie or TV show. Mm -hmm. They'll recreate all of their cloth movements. They might recreate like car doors slamming and um, anything actually that's on screen that the sound effects editor believes they cannot replicate with sound effects from their library, a Foley artist will do. And it's a really, really skilled job. Like, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> so the re-recording mixer will take Foley dialogue, sound effects, and music from the composer. and the re-recording mixer will balance them all together. So they will make sure that if there's dialogue, your dialogue is always key. That's what you want to hear. And the sound effects will just sit under it and not interfere with your dialogue. Mm -hmm. And same with your music. And they'll, you know, if the dialogue is in a cave, those recordings are not going to sound like they're in a cave already. So the, the re-recording mixer will make it sound like that. They'll put on like echo and reverb, they'll EQ it and make it sound like it's in that space. And yeah, that's essentially the different stages of the sound. Uh, Re-recording mixer actually is a little bit technical as well because if it's for TV, we have certain loudness levels that we have to reach. So we can't be too loud, can't be too quiet. Mm -hmm. and that's kind of to combat um, all of the complaints that viewers make about mumbling dialogue or having to push up the volume higher or lower there's new regulations that we have to follow to try and help stop that happening it hasn't quite worked but that's what we're meant to try and do ah, why hasn't it quite worked well some mixers got a little bit cheeky about it and there's this specification called or 128 and in theory, you use your dialogue as your anchor. So your dialogue is your loudest part. Yeah. And everything is balanced around it. But some shows, and I won't name any just in case I'm with them. Okay. And I get an angry email. Actually, I'll name one. Uh, Grand Tour. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Funnily I enough, I like not something we'll be covering. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well. I know my editor and Pro Tools expert already called this one out, so I'm like, I'm okay with this. It's my <laughs> fault for doing this. Um, so Grandeur, what they did was they wanted to make the car, like, do you know the races that the three lads do? Yeah. They wanted to make them really loud and really in your face. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> they took the dialogue and they mixed the dialogue a lot quieter so that when those big car scenes came in, it felt much louder and much more in your face. And the way the specification works is it measures the loudness of your show overall. So we used to have a different way where you could, all of your sound had to be hitting six on what was called a PPM meter. Then we got rid of that or when 2A came in. 
So it meant that we could have more dynamic mixes. So everything didn't have to be hitting the same point. And so these mixers, if they just took their dialogue mix to minus 23, it meant these car chases couldn't be as loud. Mm -hmm. So that's why they decided to be cheeky with it, take their dialogue and mix it quieter. But what happened was, as soon as viewers were going to watch it on Amazon, all the dialogue sections, they had to push up the volume really loud to hear it. But then as soon as the car chases came in, they were too fucking loud. So they had yeah. to push the volume down again and put a quieter. And they just spend the whole show yep. up and down. And it's really fucking frustrating. It's like, so funny you say it because um, I, I'm i not watching the Grand Tour. And, I, you know, well, I I've, watched some, <laughs> I've watched some Top Gear in the past. And not, just, not, not for me, irrespective of this <laughs> podcast. Um, I, I have watched a lot of films. I'm always watching film and TV. And I have definitely noticed this more recently. That because there was always the case where you know ads, for example, I always think ads are louder than TV shows. But people are, are watching fewer ads now anyway. But um, I am finding, and it, it might be my television for all I know, but um, I am definitely finding that a lot of the time I have to put subtitles on if I can't quite uh, understand what people are saying. And then there will be an action scene, and it will like blow the the subwoofers or what have you in my TV. So I think that's happening like across the board I'm, I'm not surprised you've kind of made me feel a bit better that there wasn't something wrong with my ears because I'm like how is it that I can't hear the dialogue but I can hear this other noise and it's too loud I think that um there's definitely something I think with the way that um our attention we we, we don't pay enough attention to things nowadays if we're second screening no. or, or or whatever that this is a way that I think directors are using sound perhaps to get someone's attention back to something and oh you don't want to miss this car chase or, or something like that so yeah. so thanks very much for that because I was like okay it's not just me or my tv it's, no, it's your the... tv is fine don't worry <laughs> <laughs> don't buy a new one you don't need <laughs> oh yeah well always want a bigger tv um that was such a brilliant description of the different jobs. Thank you so much for that. It's like it's so nice for you to put it so succinctly. And um, so a question that comes out of that is um so the re-recording and in drama is where you want to go. What is it about that that is is it more of a challenge? It sounds more challenging. It it is and it isn't. I mean, the thing that factual and entertainment mixers face is our timescales are really tight. So for an hour-long documentary where you have to put in a full, what's called a track lay, but it's the same as a sound effects edit. It's putting in all the atmospheres and sound effects. If you have to do that, you get three days. Mm-hmm. So you get a day to um, sound edit, a day to do what's known as a premix, which is a mixer's mix. And a day final mix, which is where the client comes in and, you know, makes their tweaks and decides what they want. In a drama, if you have an hour-long drama, a re-recording mixer might get five days for one episode that's an hour long. Mm-hmm. I can see that, that. Yeah, you want to do your best work and you want to not feel under pressure. And it sounds exactly. like, yeah, more time would allow that. Okay, yeah. But, yeah. Sorry, go on. But- but that's like the main difference is the time scales. Like the a drama mixer, they they have better quality audio generally than an entertainment or factual mixer does. 
So they have audio that's generally been recorded quite well on set, or you hope it is, <laughs> or they get ADR that is completely clean. Whereas an entertainment effectual mixer actually has to do a lot more to get their dialogue really clean and clear and crisp. And the only difference that I can see is a mentality with people. That there is this very old school mentality that I've only ever worked in drama or feature and if you haven't done it, you don't know how to do it. Mm. It doesn't matter what you've done before, you're not capable of this. And that's the only difference I can ever see in this industry. There's no reason why a factual or entertainment mixer can't progress into drama and feature and do just as good a job as someone who's been doing it for years. And it's the same with directing. It's the same across the board with every job. I've noticed that too. Absolutely. What you're saying is, you know, it's it's depressing, but the only thing I can think is that it's consistent across disciplines. I think everybody, I think because obviously, you know, your job sounds incredibly exciting to me and um, and also um, uh, really hard work, um, but something where you get to be at the cutting edge of something and you get to know that your creative input will be seen or heard on screen. And um, I... I do feel like that this is still an industry and it has absolutely nothing to do with gender, although that's an added layer. It's an industry where everyone is so scared that they won't be working again, that they come up with a lot of like not completely true reasons why somebody can't do something else. When I think that if everybody got to be like, you know, skilled in multidiscipline, then that would just make for better end product and also there wouldn't be a gap like you said earlier um for talented crew for for different things because I can imagine if you did get to do what you wanted there might be part of you a couple of years down the line you'd be like oh maybe I do want to go back to entertainment and factual and try something different or you know or if you worked somewhere where someone said oh you can do this for a little while and then in six months time you'll be doing something else and everybody gets a fair crack I I I really I don't know how to do this um but I really think that um there is this stranglehold by older people in the industry who've had to fight tooth and nail a bit like your female director you mentioned and they think that's the only way for people below them to also make their way up the greasy pole when in fact you should be laying track for other people so it's easier for them heard about him being on the phone He's doing fine. Well, I don't give him my phone, so I'd appreciate it if you didn't give him yours. Okay, well. Great. I just want him to connect with something. Joy. Joy. He's really doing fine. I don't know what's wrong with me. Supposed to be happy. You just need to rest, okay? No, I don't. I don't need that's, to rest. That's what the doctor that is said. not what the doctor said. You don't know what he said because it was a confidential conversation and you don't know what he said. Right, all right, all right. I feel like you're impossible to talk to right now. Well, sorry. Well, no, no, you're not sorry. Yeah, I'm not sorry. Game of Thrones, the first season of it, all of the post production was done within the company that I worked for. Yeah. And the only reason we didn't continue doing all the post production was because it was huge, but. Actually, we were in a funny situation where we all got to see a cast and crew screening of the first episode before it ever aired. And every single woman who worked for the company <laughs> hated it. 
all hated it. We were just like, this is so terrible. Like there's rape, there's violence against women. This is never going to be successful. And um, thankfully all of us are eating our words and it was, and it was brilliant. Um, so that was obviously a highlight. Uh, I don't know if you've um, if you've watched it, if you've watched all the other seasons, but you know I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. I had friends who read the books, female friends, and I was like, I'm not sure this is for me. Not that I didn't like fantasy, but you know I was just concerned, and I felt exactly the same way as you did. But the the thing that I take from it is that if you watch season one and then you watch season six, seven, then it's is it six, seven, something? No, it's yeah, six, seven. I think we're on. The, are we coming up eight? Anyway, the last two. The, the last two seasons is that the 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 journey of the female characters is such that I'm guessing how you felt and how all the female crew felt when you were watching that episode was mirrored in the audience and then I, I'm guessing like the creators could see that there was something there that there needed to be an emancipation so um I'm I'm happy to hear about your gut feeling uh, but also maybe because of that, that's where the show became better because um, I was re-watching the first early seasons and it's still incredibly uncomfortable uh, from a woman's perspective. But when you see now that like the, definitely the last season, I just thought, well, maybe you had to go through that to get to this. I'm in a very weird position at the moment with feminism in the sense that we want to move to this perfect world where everything on screen is depicted how it should be but that I don't think the world can move that quickly it takes time and I think an evolution of a show maybe is you know the next time they're, because they're doing this prequel show you never know you might be able to get involved with it I don't know who's doing it you probably know more than me but I hear that it's got Naomi Watts and she might be the protagonist and I can imagine that that show which is actually I think set further back in time may still be more female-led or or gentler I don't I don't know but do you have you noticed this in the work you've worked on have you gone towards projects where there's been more female representation I'm guessing you're just looking for work but does that draw you do you get to do that well I'm kind of in an opposition where I don't fully get to pick and choose my work yes but any independent project that I take on recently it's because it's been a female crew or it's been a female subject and that's why I've taken it on. I don't, I haven't done that many independent projects since I've gone freelance. I tend to go through the post houses just because it's a lot easier for my head and my invoice. Um, I'm paying the bills. <laughs> well, exactly, yes. Um, but independent projects, I definitely try and veer towards more all-female crew or at least, you know, a good chunk of female crew. like. The last project I did was a VR project that was all female crew, but it was also about a couple um, going through IVF treatment and trying to get pregnant. And it was mainly focused on the woman's experience and how difficult she was finding it. And that's what drew me to the project was the crew, but also it was a female lead. And I found it really fascinating. And also it was a subject that's not really tackled that much. No. Um, and it was, it was a really powerful piece. And I was so glad I was involved. Um, and also the one before that was a, a short film. And it was for an up and coming uh, director called Zoe. And, you know, female director, she'd try to use all female crew. And I think actually she did use all female crew again. 
And as soon as I see that in an email from someone looking to work with me, I'm like, Do you know what? I, I don't really, I hope your subject matter is female driven as well. But if it's not, I don't care the fact that you've gone to that effort. Like, even if you don't have the budget for me, I will find a way to help you work on this because what you're trying to do is important. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so good to hear, though, that it's happening because I see more and more things and I just, I'm just hoping that it's not me just looking for things and therefore in my mind I'm trying to make it better because I don't know if you've seen a lot of the um, industry-wide surveys that they have been both um, over here and obviously in America because it's where they get the most of the research and the most of the work where it seems like sometimes there's a little bit of false positives where you might have a project like that where it's all female crew or majority or it's a female focused issue and then yeah. it will almost be as if that you know that's a passion project and you've done that you've ticked a box and then you go back to men 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 I'm, I'm also really happy to hear that there are people uh, there are women in uh, a lot of those roles because I found because I'm trying to make my short film and I'm trying to go for um, uh, crew cast and crew or female and I found there just aren't as many people around in certain of the jobs like DP anything to do with cinematography I struggle the most DP effect yeah so yeah and it's funny because I just think that um that's a job where like you know sexist me misunderstood me it's like I just think women have just like a really good eye <laughs> I just, it's like it doesn't have to be about like hardware and and you know the having to cart anything about anymore it's about how the scene looks and what you want to convey and you know color and and things like that so um it's always good to hear those stories um, can I ask a bit more about the VR? I don't know how much you can talk about it. So what's it is it what's it gonna be on if it's VR? Like how does the audience access it? Well, actually it's through Google. Google oh. part funded it. Um so from what I understood from the clients, um Google are trying trying to get more into creating drama and creating drama content for their, their platform. So they commissioned um they commissioned Dee and uh, Chai to make this series about um, IVF treatment. And, yeah, they I think they've released it on YouTube now. Oh, I will have a look. If I can find it, yeah, I'll definitely put it in the show notes because... Um, it's, yeah. yeah, it's called Hope, I think. They, they had a different name for it, and then they I, I'm pretty sure they renamed it Hope. Um, and it's beautiful. It's really, really well done. And they actually didn't go full 360. They did 180 VR. Okay. Um, it actually just made it feel a bit more intimate and it's as if you were there. Yes. Is it a bit more of a first-person perspective, I'm guessing? That's what I think of when I think yeah. of VR, that it's you seeing it through your eyes. So, yeah. Oh. So I suppose my next question then is, is that are you seeing any, because that's, that's just like blows my mind, are, are you seeing developments then in sound and uh, visual is that, do you think there are going to be more VR projects? Is that the way things are going? Because I, I know from like, if you talk about, for example, game consoles or something like that, the hardware now is all still super expensive. So I don't see how the average person is going to get necessarily into the content if they have to view it themselves. But if you're doing more work on this, then I feel like that the big players are thinking that this is the future. I think they do think that. I think just like feminism is going to take quite a while to progress <laughs> to where we want it to be. Yep. I think VR is in the same place. Okay. I mean, at the moment, it is still a very isolating experience. You cannot, you can't watch it as a group. You can only watch it individually with your headset on 
and your headphones on. And I mean, I think that's one of the great things about TV and film is that it's a very inclusive um, environment. Mm. You can sit there, you can watch it with your friends, you can be social, you know, you can, you can chat about what you're watching. Whereas with VR, you can't do any of that. So it just takes some of the enjoyment away from it for me. And I think other people do find that as well. It's, it's just like, well, I may as well just sit at home watching my laptop. And people are doing cinema. that. That's the thing. You know, we are, we are talking about a more isolated society. Do you think then that maybe some kind of collaborative VR or, or something like that could be in the future? Because I can't believe you're the only person that feels like that. I mean, I hope so. I, I actually went on a VR in 360 um, mixing course recently because it is really new. I think the, the course instructor said that it's only about three or four years old, mm. the technology. It's, it's so brand new. And um, so people still aren't quite sure how to use it. The, none of the technology is really, no one piece of software does everything that you need it to do all of the different pieces of software that are available all do like parts of it good but yeah. parts not so much and you have to use a variety of platforms to do what you want but he specializes in um immersive sound installations so actually going to um an arts an art project and he'll have like maybe 32 speakers around a room and it's more immersive audio and immersive film that he specializes in mm -hmm. that I can see progressing when I've that seen I yeah I've seen I've been to the thing that reminds me of was something that take modern you know in the turbine hall I've definitely yeah. been to some things and it's quite funny as well because I remember I walked in and I was like oh there's no visual art objects anywhere am I missing something and then you walked past the speakers and and that's where you were getting it all from it was all like you know our or so um yeah I can definitely see that being yeah and that's that's something that you you would experience more as it as a group as much as an individual you can all be in it but having your own individual experience oh congratulations on the course yeah that's good yeah i mean work kind of meant that i had to miss a lot of the evenings uh, that we had <laughs> class but it was still really good and it was still really interesting and i'm guessing that you're you're constantly having to kind of retrain or, or further upskill because of the changing nature of the business yeah, completely. I mean, every week there's a new piece of software out that is the new big thing that you need to know how to use. So it's either constantly spending money on new plugins or downloading free trials and trying to figure it out and just know how to use it before you're brought into a studio where you have to use it. And especially mixing desks. Oh, my God. I was so going to ask about desks. that because I've seen them. And honestly, is that how you work with like... 200,000 different buttons <laughs> because that looks intense in fairness it's actually quite easy once you know it okay. like there, it's basically a channel strip so like one little line of buttons is called a channel strip okay and once you know one row of buttons it just replicates like 16 or 32 times so it's actually quite easy and then there's like a little transport section but the transport section is play stop fast forward rewind okay, i can it. get that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's that um the channel strip it, it's fine it's just every desk is laid out differently and every studio will lay it out differently and now avid have done this thing where they've invented this desk that's customizable so each studio can even though it might in theory be the same physical desk yeah. 
you can change the screens and you can change what's on it to suit your needs. So it just makes it 10 times harder when you're a freelancer and you have to go into a different Mm. studio and they'll have the desk and you think, oh, I know how to use it, but it's customized to how they want it. And you're like, oh, feck. And but it'll I take ask, me about half an hour to figure out how to do this. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, surely they can. They should be able to give you leeway for that. Can you um, explain, like, why why there'd be different setups? Is it really just personal preference, like how people use their mouse or or what type of keyboard they use? Is there any reason to to what why it would be different in different places? Oh, it's just personal preference. Yeah, pre- yeah. You'll find the old schoolers work in a certain way, and <laughs> the younger generation work in a different way. And that's all it is. of any age and you would like to get into a sound career what would you advise people do well I don't actually necessarily say go and study sound engineering in uni I think sometimes it can be a huge waste of money especially if you don't get into the right course so I would always say start downloading free versions of audio software like Pro Tools which is the main piece of software that 99% of studios use actually now have a free version that students or you know people who have an interest in audio can download and they can start learning how it works and what all the different functions are in it so I'd recommend anybody to start with downloading that um if you're if you're trying to get into location sound start looking up all the different microphones that are being used on set right now know what they do um you know how they work if it's post-production sound start researching the facilities because to start out you do need to start out as a runner Mm -hmm. and go in as a an entry-level position and start sitting in with the experienced engineers and just pester them (laughs) like that's what i did actually the best thing i can say is if you start out as a runner no matter what age you are because i've seen runners who are 40 years of age who've decided they want a career change and they don't stay runners for long because they're obviously really hungry for it and that like dedication and hard work does pay off um but the best thing you can do is find out what all of the audio engineers in that company like to drink (laughs) <laughs> that's what I did. I did like tea or coffee, not alcoholic drinks, just tea or coffee. Oh, that's oh, where my I brain mean... went. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, but no, it's the best thing you can do because I used to get in every morning and as soon as I knew one of the lads had arrived, I used to make a cup of tea for them and bring it straight into their studio. Um, 
and I used to keep on checking up on them during the day. And the thing was, it then put me in a good light in their minds. Yeah. So when I came and asked for help, they were just like, yeah, of course you can come and sit in. Of course we'll try and help you uh, learn a bit more of it about audio. So that's like, it's a really important thing. And actually, um, a great story that I was told when I was in university was U2's um, audio engineer, guy who creates all of, his, all of U2's albums, is a guy called Flood. And the reason he got his name was because when he was starting out in a studio, um, he was a runner and it was him and another guy. And he got called Flood because he used to constantly make cups of tea and coffee for all the musicians and all the engineers. And the other runner was called Drought because he never did. And he never did. <laughs> no, and Drought doesn't have a career. So, because no, no one no, works with him. Flood, Flood is like millionaire by now, I'd say. <laughs> oh, that's such a good story. And um, are there any... Um, uh, like online or other resources you said like look at some um some free sites and um, are there any podcasts that that deal with sound or any like or youtube oh, videos yeah. or anything that i know people can just google but if there's anything you could recommend oh no completely um tone benders is amazing um it's a american podcast but they always get really interesting people like there is a great podcast by two of the most well-known adr mixers um, in the States, whose names are now fucking escaped me. <laughs> but that was all about the process of ADR. They've had um, Mildred, whose last name I cannot pronounce, but she was just nominated for an Oscar recently. Oh, um, I should have Sorry. We'll look it up. <laughs> um, she's, yeah, she's incredible. They've done a, an interview with her. And obviously, Nina Hearthstone, who is the first European woman to win an Oscar for sound editing, they've had her on recently as well, mm-hmm. um, who's also British, and she's amazing. Um, so, Tom Bender is absolutely incredible. Um, Pro Tools expert, do one as well, that runs every week and it focuses on, you know, different plugins that you might want to use or. Uh, information on tips and tricks that's brilliant and um, Pro Tools Expert also does articles on the site that you can go and when I was starting out as a freelancer it was the first place I went to research what equipment I might mm-hmm. need so that one's really good in terms of networking I would always say if it's location sound IPS um, or if it's location and post-production amps um, which I know I'm slightly biased on because I am on the Council of Amps. <laughs> but it is brilliant because we do make sure that we organise events um, for all of our members that are really informative. Like, I can't... Actually, I uh, we're hopefully going to have Paula Fairfield um, and Andrew Hill. Andrew Hill is a, a lecturer at Greenwich University and Paula Fairfield is the sound designer for Game of Thrones. And they're doing a really interesting, um, like immersive sound design project at the moment. But I can't actually, I don't think I could say too much because no. I don't know if they've released the details. Yeah, but it's still nice but, to know that's happening. So, yeah. But they're going to be coming in and doing a talk with us and telling us what, what's been going on. So, mm. yeah, it's really good. And what about you? Do, you? do you train other people? Because I think you'd be great in the education sense. <laughs> Um, I do go to university sometimes when I'm asked. Um, so I've been out at UCA and I've been at Greenwich with Andrew 
and a few other places. And I do enjoy it, but I mean, my main passion is being in the studio with clients. Yes. So when I can teach, I do. But a lot of the time I am stuck in work. Yeah. And I do get asked to like take on work experience. But the other annoying thing about our industry is if I'm on an ADR session, it's usually highly NDA'd. So I can't have anybody in the room yes. with me. So I can never actually help train someone or progress someone in the actual studio. And it sounds like you have limited time as well. So sometimes it's just nice to watch, but you might not necessarily be able to train because that's not who's paying your bills. Well, exactly, yeah. Mm. And since I'm a freelancer, I kind of like having a roof over my house. Are you enjoying freelancing? (laughs) How are you finding the company side? Because I I set up a company a year ago. I'm just about to do my first accounts. Or should I say my accountant is? So, Uh, yeah, I'm in that boat too. I'm sending my accountant all my, uh, like, forms and stuff in a few weeks just being like, please deal with this. I don't know what's going on. I have to say, it's one of the most exciting things. Maybe this makes me a real saddo, but I'm like, yes, I have an accountant. <laughs> I, I made know. it. I totally felt that as well. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. I feel like I've made it. Yeah. Really <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Um, a couple of other things. Um, what would you say is something that we could listen to now or watch and listen to now that it's an example of really amazing sound editing has anything come to mind in recent years oh my god oh was that putting you on the spot (laughs) sorry there's just do you know what there's just so much um stranger things easily stranger things the sound design and sound mix in that whole series is just incredible i love it i love it so much um that's definitely one oh baby driver oh yes that's that's a good example of i could like you know me as a like a non-industry person i can get how difficult that must have been to sync the car and everything to the beats of the song yeah just incredible and there's there's one thing that i read in an interview that they did which was so say they were in a scene where a door closed um just as the characters walked into a room Mm-hmm. What they would do is take that door close and they'd repeat it, like pitched up or, you know, manipulated the sound in some way. But they'd pitch it up and time it to the music that was going to play in that scene. And it would repeat really low in the background. Wow. So you would never know it, but it just added a layer of texture into yeah. the sound. I really like describe describe that well, but I'm pretty sure that's what <laughs> they said in the interview. Oh, I'll and try and look it just up. Yeah, the amount of thought that they, the sound team put into that project is incredible. And how it didn't win the bloody Oscar last year is beyond me. Yes. I was happy to see nominated, though. I was just going to bring that up. I was like, I'm sure it was nominated. Because I think yeah. something that even the average person like me can see that see that their skill there is something that deserves to have an Oscar because, well, I don't know, I suppose uh, you could argue, oh, well, maybe it should be seamless. But the whole point of that is that you could recognise how difficult it was and how seamless it still looked. My favourite bit is the bit when he's going to get the coffee. I don't know if you remember that. I think that's one of the earlier yeah. scenes. So that's when you start to realise, oh, this is what this film's doing. And I just um, I just loved it that his little movements, because it was almost like a musical, and yet you know he was listening to it on the headset and uh, uh, headphones and it was just um it was just like a normal thing and I thought that that um that was just a stroke of genius um and another question uh, so yeah. you were so where um what would be your dream project so you've talked about drama what would you what, what do you want to work on 
if you've had anywhere, anything, anywhere? I think it's not so much a dream project, but I'd love to work with the director, Lenny Abramson, again. Um, I used to record ADR for his projects when I was back in Ireland, and he always makes... He was the director who did Room. Yes. uh, With Brie Larson. And his films are just so beautiful. They're so well done, and he is a director who cares about sound, and he cares about the little details. Mm. So, like, I like films where... I am never going to be a mixer who does action movies or movies like Baby Driver. Um, <laughs> it's just not, it's not me. I like the movies that are really soft and sensitive and it is about like, you know, just hearing gentle touches, like someone puts their hand to their face or, you know, people hold hands or it's just those little details yes. that make the, the soundscape come alive and make it feel more real. That's what I love. That's the type of projects I love. And I think that's what I'd really like to do. And Lenny's movies are always like that. They're always about those little details that he brings to life. And that's something as well where it's probably almost thankless as well. You know what you've done, but the whole point of it is that it would just seem so natural that you don't even think that it it was someone's job to make that happen. It would, the viewer would see it as, oh, this is just, this is just really happening in front of me. Exactly. Where someone has just spent hours either making that sound up using you know five different sounds and a mixer has spent probably a day trying to get the balance of all of those sounds right to make it sound accurate and real but that's the whole point of sound you're not meant to notice it you're meant to just be aware that it's there yes but good sounds is just meant to sit into the background and help enhance what's going on in screen. Bad sound is when you start to notice it, and you yeah. never should notice it. <laughs> yeah, the moral of the story, you should never notice it. Unless yeah. you're supposed to be in a baby well, Exactly, yeah. yeah. Unless it's sound design where you really want something to be in your face like Baby Driver. But yeah. otherwise, it should just be the viewer doesn't pay much attention to what's going on, and they just feel like it's natural and real. Thanks so much to Emma Butt for being such a star. All of her details can be found in the show notes. Here's a little snippet from next week's episode. Can you guess which film Nick and I are discussing? She is interesting. There's definitely no doubt about it. I don't think you can just get away with doing the same thing again. That's the thing. No, not the same time period, but I think that people going to see it will want there to be some kind of time shifting. Well, you might argue, yeah, absolutely. And the aliens do that. Yeah, you would. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's that's the attraction, isn't it? The repeating thing. Um, I mean, her story with Jimi Hendrix would would be a great opportunity, but then where's Tom Cruise fit in that? Plot line. Oh well, maybe we'll have to sacrifice him. Find out on the next episode of Beyond Beckdale. See you then.